In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. A couple weeks ago when we began this short summer series, we asked Katie Winkler to come up and do a recitation of a poem written by the poet laureate of America named Joy Harjo. And towards the beginning of that poem, Joy Harjo writes, The world begins at a kitchen table. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. And you hear that and you go, wow, really? Does that really happen? Or is this just, you know, poetry? But if you'll take the moment to consider what happens around a dinner table or what can, you realize it's more than a dinner. That it can be more than a discussion. And in fact, what you practice, what you discuss, what you hammer out over a meal can actually in some ways be a destiny. That there's something to moments like that. And that we are the better for recognizing their import. It's more than just about learning manners. There's something deeper that's going on around a table like that. When I was a kid, and if you're a kid, you have to sort of reflect on this. Like, what were the manners that you are learning? What are the manners that you have been taught? When I was a kid, uh, you don't chew with your mouth open. Um, You don't throw food. Um, You don't uh, say, I don't like this. Um, You eat what you're given. You know. Just sort of, don't put your elbows on the table. I never understood that one. It's just there. I know Emily Post has a reason. I I didn't read Emily Post. But the the lessons that you learn there at table, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you you then cross-apply them to other settings, at at banquets and at parties. And and therein, too, your parents sort of shared with you what not and what to do at parties. You don't arrive too early. You don't stay too late. Um... You, you only ask for, you only go for seconds when the host opens it up for seconds. Um, and you don't bring 15 other people with you that the host wasn't aware that you were coming. Just sort of natural stuff like that. Stuff you, you think about and stuff that you don't think about so that it becomes second nature. And look, it's true that um, with those customs, they, they're downstream of kind of where a culture is. And they vary with culture. It, in, in some cultures, um, to belch at the table is a sign of respect. Not rude. And, and my kids will sometimes mention that fact when they let one go like that. And, and I'll say, but what culture are we in? Right? And in some places, it's most proper to come very fashionably late. So customs vary with culture. And yet, given that poem that we referenced, and given what we think about when we do what we do around dinner tables, we realize that what happens through customs is actually reaching into something deeper. Something that has to do with our life, not just how we conduct ourselves around a table. We're in a short series for the summer, listening to Jesus tell stories. Those stories he calls parables. Pithy, vivid, evocative, poignant little stories. Some of which he explains, and at other times he just tells you the story and say, He who has ears, let him hear. The story that we're going to listen to him tell today Actually, three stories that are one all take place in the context of a dinner party thrown by a ruler of the Pharisees. Jesus, for some reason, is invited to be the life of the party. And by the end of it, he has made himself the conscience of the party. And not always to everybody's liking. But what he's going to say in the course of these parables is to tell us something about etiquette. 
how to conduct yourself at a party or at a banquet. But what he's really doing is telling us something deeper than just what is a custom or a culture. He's reaching into something that is as deep and as substantial as bedrock. And he wants us to hear it in the context of the things that we do when we gather at a party. So he's going to tell us three ways, three modes of being at a party. The etiquette for being the guest at a party, the etiquette for being the host of a party, and the etiquette for being an invitee to a party. Being a guest at a party, being the host of a party, and being the invitee to a party. It's deeper than just manners. Let's hear what he has to say. We're in Luke chapter 14. If you're able to stand, would you to hear? Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But, he said to him, A man once gave a banquet, a great banquet, and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Three things for us, and they all take place in the context of a dinner party. 
And what has just happened before Jesus starts rolling out stories at the party is in verses 1 through 6, he's caused a little bit of a stir. Jesus digs, causing stirs. There at the party, there is somebody who is afflicted with something called dropsy. In our world, that's called edema. That's when you have swollenness, retention of fluid. It's often in the joints. It's very painful. And right then, it's on the Sabbath, the party, and there's the man who is in need of healing. And so Jesus does what he likes to do on the Sabbath when rulers are around. He likes to ask a provocative question. And he likes to ask this question. So, boys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And all of them are like, don't answer. So what does he do? He heals the man with edema, dismisses the man with edema to go do what you do when you've been healed with edema. I guess leap for joy. And then he quotes the law to the Pharisees. The law which says, if your son or your ox falls into the ditch, will you not remove them from the ditch? As if to say to them, now boys, if your son or your ox fell in the ditch on the Sabbath, Are you going to check your watch until sundown and let your son languish there in the ditch until because the Sabbath is still on? Of course not. I'm telling you, he's out to cause a stir. And by that moment, it is probably very likely that the host of the party was rethinking his interest in inviting Jesus to be the guest of honor. Which would have been ironic because it is precisely that idea of the guest of honor to which Jesus then turns his attention in verse 7. He is here to tell them and to tell us something about etiquette. Etiquette with a capital E. Etiquette that has to do with being the guest at a party. It has more to do than just with behavior. In that day, at a wedding feast, it was typical that those who would come for the feast, that the table would be arranged sort of in a U-shaped thing. There weren't seats. There were just pillows. You would recline. And at a customary wedding feast like that, there would be no name cards. Sit here. There would be no seating chart. Ah, that's where I go. There would be no wedding planner with the fake smile on their face saying, sit here, sit here, sit here. None of that. Bride and groom would sit at the, you know, the head of the U there, and they're... Uh, you know, most important people would see it at the right and to the left, but the rest of the seats were up for grabs. And therefore, it had become quote of customary in that day, if there were no assigned seating, for everybody to rush in and grab the best seat possible. For when you sit as close to the center of focus or of attention, that represented in the eyes of others your honor, your esteem. And so they rushed in, grabbed the seats where they could, and always trying to sit as close to the focal point as they could. And Jesus is saying, I will have none of that. Don't do that. What's he talking about? What is a custom there? What was a cultural tradition in that day? Jesus is saying, this is not just about a custom. This is not just about manners. This is reaching into something deeper. And that's why he says two things to them. One, don't grab for the seats of distinction. Don't try to sit as close as you can to the center of attention as you might want to or feel inclined to or feel natural to follow. Don't do that because it's very possible that as you sit there, that the host of the party has invited somebody else of greater rank or distinction than you, and then they have to come to you and say, "Ah, I need you to move. And then everybody sees that. And for you, in that moment, it's a shameful moment. 
Don't grab for the seats of distinction. Instead, aim for the cheap seats. As StubHub puts it, go to the obstructed view seats. The nosebleed seats. The seats where you go, why did I come to this party at all? Sit there. And then, he says, it's possible that the host may come to you and say, oh, no, 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 not, not there, man. No, no. You sit here. No, sit here. I want you to sit here. And in that moment, your humility will be your esteem. Your humility will be your honor. Jesus is talking about something that's deeper than just the etiquette or manners at a party. And the reason we know that is because he references this very ominous phrase that you hear throughout Scripture in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's Jesus' larger point here than just how to behave at a wedding feast? Here's his point. You find your honor by not looking for it. You find your honor by not seeking it out. You don't get wrapped around a pole trying to find that place of distinction and esteem that everybody else is. There's nothing wrong with regard or acclaim or accolade. Jesus is lauding that. What he's pushing back against is the natural, normal means we seek to gain that honor, which is just exemplified in grabbing the greatest seat at a wedding feast. You find your honor by not seeking it, which, friends, that's as contrary to the spirit of our age and that age as anything you might imagine. There are whole careers built on the role of the job title called promoter, publicist. What's their gig? To make somebody else be the center of everybody else's attention, to gain them honor and esteem and a paycheck. It is a natural thing to seek one's honor and to invest so much in that effort. And it feels so natural, so normal, that it feels almost like a virtue. A virtue under the nice phrase that says, make a name for yourself. It's kind of like a you do you kind of meme. Make a name for yourself. It's what we do. It's where we go. It's not even like we have to be taught to do that. We just do it. And it feels so natural that it feels like a virtue. Look, um, you know where this kind of impulse manifests itself? At birthday parties when you're a kid. You show up at the birthday party and where do you want to sit when it's time to open the presents, eat the cake? Close to the birthday kid. You want to sit there. I want to get this close. Move. Move. I'm sitting here. That's what you do. And then you ask them, hey, can I spend the night? I want to play with your toys. Right? Tell me I'm wrong. You do that when you're a kid at a birthday party. You know what? You know when you feel that? You feel that impulse when you try out for the lead in the musical. You feel it when you get it, and you also feel the hollowness of when you don't. You, you do that when you pad your college application or your resume. I, I saved a badger from drowning in the French Broad River using only my teeth. Um, you know, you, you just come up with stuff to be all sort of impressive in other people's eyes. Because you think the only way you'll gain honor is if you go grab it yourself. You do that, kids and adults, when you only put the coolest parts of you online. 
and never tell anybody about the parts of you that you're embarrassed by. You're creating an image of yourself that in some well sense is a lie because you think your only honor will be found is by going out and grabbing it and creating it. And it feels so natural. And it feels harmless. And in some ways it feels like a virtue because doesn't, isn't that how we get on in this world? Jesus is saying it's not a virtue. In fact, it's not a virtue. He'll tell you what it is, though. It's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. The kind of effort that you have to put in to figuring out what it is to be honored among those you want to be honored among and then to kind of fight your way in and grab that spot and to, to, to find that honor and then you've got to put all this effort into keeping that honor and then you feel all of this extra effort and wondering, do, am, I, am I really honorable? And this honor, this kind of weird kind of category, what is that? Maybe that just means I'm just better than other people. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's also terrifying. Because if you think the only honor you will ever get is the honor that you go out and grab and get and you fail at the attempt, then you are terrified of being on the outside of everything that's good. It's tiring. It's terrifying. And with all due respect to those who are in high school, it is also so high school. And by that I mean this. I remember high school. I remember the distinct and potent need to feel important and to be respected. And I can remember all the number of ways, the myriad ways, I would finally calibrate words and actions so that what? So that I might gain honor for myself. Not because I needed to just do the work that I was given, but because I needed to make a name for myself. And we are all tempted to that very thing. It is tiring. It is terrifying. It is so high school. And therefore, whenever you are tempted... To think that you've got to go find your honor by grabbing it. Let me just remind you of a character that's in the, the show Stranger Things. His name is Steve Harrington. That's Steve. And in the first couple seasons, he is big man on campus with hair to boot. Big hair. I mean, who does that? And there... He is the big man on campus. He is everything. He is the bee's knees. And then he graduates from high school, and he ends up working at Scoops Ahoy, and that's his job outfit. That looks a lot like my first job's outfit, sans the cap. But everything that he was and thought he should aspire to suddenly gets ripped out from beneath his feet when he graduates from high school, and now he's working at an ice cream job in a mall, and he still wrestles with it. He still wrestles with not being popular, lamenting the fact that he once was and now that he's not. And so it takes little Dustin, little curly-haired Dustin, who can sing his mouth off. He says to him, Steve, don't you think it's time you move on from primitive constructs such as popularity? (laughs) And we all laugh and we all go, yeah, that's so hilarious. And we go, why do I do that? You find your honor by not looking for it, Jesus is out to say. And that's a lot, has a lot more to do than what you do at a party. As a party guest, so in life. And that's the deeper truth, the first troop of etiquette. But he also wants to talk to us in terms of what it would mean to be a host of a party. And what you're going to hear him say in verse 13 should sound pretty familiar given what you heard us say during the Sermon on the Mount. 
when Jesus would warn us about loving only those who love us, in greeting with kindness only those whom we consider brethren. He said, look, Gentiles and tax collectors do that. Is there nothing different about you? You don't love just those whom you love. You love even those who are your enemies. And what Jesus is out to warn us here in the story, here in the dinner party, is against the temptation of a certain kind of favoritism. And you hear him put it there in verse 13 when he says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. What? Wait a minute. What? Jesus, you know how much effort goes into throwing a party and how much attention it takes to, to, to pull off a party well and, and, and how much care is applied to making all things wondrous and, and most likely, therefore, all of the expense that goes into pulling off a great banquet. Jesus, wait a minute. Why wouldn't I want to just invite them? It's a gift to them, right? And Jesus is saying, look, there is effort that goes into a banquet, but not all kinds of effort are the same. There can be great expense when it comes to hosting and throwing a party. And that expense and the effort can seem to yourself and to others like this thing we call generosity. It can seem just like that, right in the center of it. But Jesus is asking us to test what we might think is generosity if we're the host of a party. And the test of our generosity is what we expect from those whom we end up inviting, first of all. There is a practice that is both ancient and modern and will be with humanity for as long as they're humanity. And it is a practice upon which culture and economics and politics these days lives or dies. And this practice that I'm talking about, which is so pervasive and is everywhere and we all do it and we don't even realize it, is this thing called reciprocity. Big word. Relax. Let me define it. Reciprocity is simply giving with the expectation of receiving. It is giving in order to get. It's what we call, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. It is the idea of giving with strings attached. And we're all liable to it. And in the same way that it feels utterly natural to go out and seek our own honor, grabbing for our honor, it equally feels just as natural to do all sorts of things that feel like generosity, which in fact are anything but. We give in order to get something from it. And therefore, Jesus is implicitly asking anybody who's giving a party, what is beneath all your effort? What's motivating what feels like generosity, because the test of it is not only what you expect from those who you come, but who will you include in your party? Who will be the beneficiary of your gift giving and all your expense and effort? See, in the context of a party, Jesus has found the perfect opportunity to make a point there at the end of 13 and 14 when he says this, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right, what's with trotting out this 
foursome of poor, crippled, lame, and blind. What, what, to, to whom did those refer? Those are the people in a first century mindset that everybody would be thinking of when the people that have no standing, that have no clout, that have no means, that have no advocacy, and are in some sense considered to have no seat at the table of any goodness. They are outsiders. They may even be considered those who are accursed simply by virtue of them being poor, crippled, lame, and blind. You invite them, he says, you should never expect them to be inviting you to their party because they are not having a party. You can't even expect them to send you a thank you note because they don't have a stamp to lick. And so the point that Jesus is making, far deeper, far more expansive, far wider than just how do you behave as the host of a party is this. True generosity takes no thought of reciprocity. True generosity takes no thought of reciprocity. All right, that's a big way of saying it. Let me put it this way. He's saying this. When you give to, you have to give up on giving, getting back. When you give to, you have to give up on getting back. That's his larger point. And yet, in embracing that idea of true generosity, he's not saying that there's nothing good in it. He says there's blessing in it. Why is there blessing in it? At one very superficial level, if you just think about it, true generosity means you're not lying anymore. See, there's a kind of effort and expense and self-sacrifice that you can put out there, that everybody will seem and see in you and think, oh, now that's being generous. When in fact, it can be not self-sacrifice, but self-promotion. It's just about what you can get out of it. You invite all the A-listers so that the A-listers might invite you or that you might be seen as those who, wow, we invited all the A-listers and they came. You stop lying to others by the nature if you're truly being generous and you stop lying to yourself. Because you really think it's all about self-sacrifice, but in fact, it's all about self-promotion. That world applies in so many ways in which we give to another way. And so, look, Jesus is not saying every time you've got to throw a party, you've got to have like a quota of blind people. Okay, where do I find a lame person? Uh, how about you? Come. <laughs> he is saying this, though, by way of warning. Don't, don't confuse a lot of self-sacrifice that could be just self-promotion beneath the surface. Because in that moment, you're doing just what the first parable was about, about seeking your own honor and grabbing for it. There's a way of giving that is really giving to yourself that's not giving at all. And yet it feels so normal. We need etiquette for what it means to be the guest at a party. We need his etiquette for what it means to be the host of a party. But none of those will ever click. None of those will ever embrace. None of the opposite inclinations will we ever follow unless we understand what it means to be an invitee to a party. And here's the thickest part of the parable. And one individual who has just finished the meal all fat and happy sort of revels in the uh, postprandial joy. And there says... To everyone's earshot, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
He breaks into Sandra McCracken. We will feast in the house of Zion. Right? Love that song. He's sort of saying, won't it be great when God finally, you know, it all comes together and we all have a feast at the table. And Jesus, rather than stroking his beard and says, hear, hear, indeed, verse 16 starts with the word, but. As if to suggest that Jesus would like to lightly push back against the mindset of the one reveling in the future yet to come. At which then he tells a story which he does not explain, but just tells. And that story goes like this. A man started, invited, a man um, threw a banquet, invited all of the guests that he would. Everybody gets the Evite. They all respond with, hashtag, can't wait. See you there, man. Right? Day of the party comes. Man sends the servant out, rings the bell. Okay, it's starting. It's time for you to show up. And at that point, the host starts to get responses, excuses. First guy says, man, I just bought a piece of land. Got to do a walkthrough. Can't make it. Hashtag sorry. Second guy, hey, you know, I just bought some cattle. I need to give them a once over. Hashtag miss ya. Third guy goes, man, I just got married. You get it, right? Hashtag rain check. Those who are listening to the story at this point are chuckling to themselves, going, that's, that's lame, ridiculous excuses for not coming to a majestic banquet of this stature. They're all laughing until they're thinking about, what is he out to say to us here by telling the story? Jesus doesn't pause there. He continues with the story. They don't come? Fine. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Let them come in. Servants say, yes, sir. They hit the trail. They invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They bring them to the party. They sit them down at the feast. And then they report back to the host saying, they're here. They're here. But we've still got seats, man. And the host says, go out to the outskirts. Persuade anybody that will be in earshot of you to come to my party. I want my house to be filled. The more, the merrier. Bring them. And then Jesus ends his story by saying, and those ones I invited, they won't get a morsel. But they'll only be excluded because they excluded themselves. What is Jesus saying by the story? What is he getting at? People offering lame excuses lead them to forsake the banquet of all banquets. And the host invites these people that nobody thought would ever be invited to anything of this majesty or stature. They get to dine and feast and enjoy. Why would Jesus throw those two kinds of people together into the same story? What is he out to say by telling this rather curious tale? One, the reveler is right. The kingdom will come, and on that day there will be a feast like no other feast. And yet, the kingdom and the feast will not be apart from Jesus, but will be in and through him. And it will not, you will not have access to that party because of your pedigree or what you know or of your aptitudes or whether or not you feel whole or right or righteous. Entrance into this party will be by invitation only. And those whom you think are on the outskirts of God, on the outside of God's intention or his blessing or his kindness, they will be as welcome at this table as anybody else that thinks themselves already worthy of coming to that table. 
Jesus is out to say to two kinds of people, those who think themselves too important for the invitation and those who think themselves not worthy of the invitation. Jesus says, you're both wrong. This table is for those whom I invite. And therefore, by telling this tale, Jesus is out to clarify both who is welcome at his table and on what basis they are welcome. And the only basis that they're ever going to be welcomed by is because they recognize their need for him to come to them with kindness and benevolence and generosity. Jesus tells this story and then he enacts this story in history by his own life. Not only does he come as one who will not try to seek honor for himself. He will not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he will set all of that aside, everything that he's entitled to, and he will make himself a servant for those he wishes to come sit at his table. Not only will he be one to give in such a way that nobody can pay him back, that he's not expecting anything in return, he will give of himself to a degree that nobody could pay him back even if they wanted to or could. What he gives is of infinite value that can't be compensated for but can only be received and given thanks for. And this Jesus on his cross will show that whether you are of high standing in some people's eyes or of no standing in in people's eyes, the only way you have access to this table is those who admit their need of it. That's what we call the gospel. This story he tells is the story he writes for himself on that cross and from outside of a tomb. And he brings together those who know and who don't, those who have left nothing and those who have much. And he says, you will feast, but by invitation only. Babette's Feast was a film that came out in 1988 and won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. It takes place in a very Spartan Lutheran fishing village with people who don't have two sticks to rub together, but they do have a lot of lutefisk. And one of the young women, a single woman, meets a young budding officer, and their love is kindled. But at some point, that officer decides to forsake love and instead pursue his own glory through military service. He departs, and the woman is left behind there in the village with her family, extended family. In the meantime, the village comes by way of a French woman who's marooned on a ship and she comes in and the village takes her in and nurses her back to health and turns out she's a chef, an amazing chef. And she's so heartened by their kindness and generosity toward her over several many years that at one point she she notifies them all that she played a lottery in Paris and she's won and she's got to go to Paris to reclaim her winnings. And so she leaves and they think they may never see her again. But she returns with all of this food. And she says, I'd like to prepare you all a dinner like you've never eaten before. And so she invites all of these very poor, impoverished fishers from her family to a dance, or rather to a party, a dinner party. And it just so happens that the officer that had forsaken that young woman 30 years before, he too is invited. And they all gather at this dinner like no other dinner. And at the end of the meal, the officer, now much older, And having reflected upon all he had given up 
and how what he had sought perhaps was not what he thought it would be worth. It took a meal of great care and generosity for him who had given up so much and realized what he had given it up for was even greater. It inspired him to quote Psalm 8611, mercy and righteousness kiss and are met together. We learn in the last scene of the film that Babette, the chef, had won 10,000 francs in Paris. And when everybody in that Lutheran fishing village asked her how much it cost to put on that diner, that dinner, she says, 10,000 francs. She gave all she won to give them all she had. Oh, friends, Jesus' story in this parable is out to tell us the biggest story that he gave all he had that we might feast on him and await a feast yet to come in which we shall see with searing brilliance that mercy and righteousness are met together. Righteousness and peace kiss. This is the story that holds us. This is the story we tell ourselves. And therefore, what does he have for us in this parable that's meant to tell us of the bigger story? If you consider Jesus to be one whom you might respect, but one to whom you may not want to revere or worship, Jesus' word to you is, you need to evaluate all of the excuses you might give for keeping yourself from him and to see whether or not they are lame. But for those who have answered his call and to see his mercy as good and infinite, he is inviting us all to remember on what basis we have a seat at his table, and that is by grace alone. And that manifests most clearly on how you seek your honor and whom you include in your bounty. He is your seat at the table. And that is why generosity must be true in us. And by his spirit and with his help, and as we live between the memory of what he's done and the hope of what he has yet to do, we shall live with goodness. He does make us at table. May he do so. Let's pray. Father, help us to feed on you. Help us to be nourished by what you have for us. And would you rescue those wonderful, potent, and important metaphors from mere abstraction? Would you help us to find great love in what you have done? To know it, to rest in it, and even in week when we can feel nothing of it, that we still walk in it, and that your spirit would commend us to it. Help us to feast, sir. Help us to look forward to the feast. Amen.